You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening. Hello and welcome. I'm Lloyd DeWitt, uh, Curator of European Art, and it's my pleasure to introduce to you this evening uh, Hugo Chapman of the British Museum. Hugo is a Londoner, studied at Westfield under David Bynum, and spent 10 years at Christie's, Old Master Drawings. In 1995, he joined the British Museum as assistant keeper of Italian drawings and curated the marvelous exhibition, Michelangelo, Closer to the Master, in 2005. He became keeper in 2011. So great pleasure to welcome Hugo tonight to speak to us about Michelangelo's drawings, The Artist Revealed. Thank you uh, very much. Thank you, Lloyd. Um, and before I start, I just would like to say that I'd like to uh, dedicate uh, this evening's lecture to a great friend of mine and a wonderful Italian scholar whom I've learned a huge amount over the years, David McTavish, who sadly is too ill to be here tonight. But I hope his... Um, his spirit is very much... Uh, here. So uh, I would begin by uh, again thanking you very much for coming and also congratulating Lloyd and uh, David Wistow on the marvelous exhibition and uh, how lucky you are, uh, Toronto, to have this great show uh, in town from, from the Casa Buonarroti, the, the font of, uh, of, of Michelangelo's studies. And it's a, a, a great privilege, I hope, for all of you to to have this show uh, at your fingertips and you can go and see uh, it um, you know, from, from today onwards. And really what I'm going to talk about tonight is, is, is about the drawings in the show. I'm going to sometimes uh, veer off it and, and talk about other drawings uh, that are either not on show, but for the most part I'm going to concentrate on the drawings in the show to, in, a, in a hope of... Uh, asking the kind of questions that, that um, uh, when I look at a Michelangelo drawings, what is going on through my head in trying to understand what the artist is doing on that sheet of paper. Uh, and I'm aware that there's an amazing range. Some of you know alarmingly far too much about Michelangelo in the audience. And some of you may be uh, those are the ones uh, who know much less about Michelangelo and, and old master drawings in general. So it's sort of pitched at... at um, uh, somewhere in, the, in, in between those two poles. So what is there downstairs? There's, there's 29 drawings, I think, by, from the Casa Bonarotti, and that represents about 5% of his output. There are about 600 drawings by Michelangelo, and that sounds quite a, lot, a large number when you think about it, 600 drawings. And there are some scholars uh, who I won't name, but who think that 600 drawings is far too many drawings, uh, that in fact there are far fewer drawings and it's people like me who uh, at the British Museum sitting on a 80 drawings by Michelangelo that I want to inflate the number um, 
But, and, and we know there are moments uh, that Michelangelo destroyed um, his drawings, uh, that we have uh, this uh, information that right at the end of his life, uh, Michelangelo, aged 88 in 1564, orders that drawings be burnt in his Roman studio. And so on the face of it, that would suggest that there should be no Roman drawings at all. Um, and, uh, but when we go downstairs, we see two undeniably uh, late Roman drawings from Michelangelo's studio. So I think that makes us very aware from the outset that we should be very careful, as with all historical facts, to, to interrogate them and ask, is that really the case? Because if Michelangelo ordered all his Roman drawings to be burnt uh, by those drawings from, the, from 1516 to 1534, uh, those are the period when he was in Rome, they should all have gone in, that, in the flames, but they're not. Here are two wonderful drawings downstairs, uh, a very heavily worked drawing on the left for San Giovanni de Florentini, uh, one of the uh, many uh, plans um, uh, that never came to fruition, and on the right, uh, uh, Again, a very beautifully worked uh, with uh, lead-white highlights uh, of the Porta Pia. So um, we have to be very careful about the idea of destruction and that all the drawings were destroyed at the end of his life. But it is true to say that the drawings from the last 30 years are much rarer than those uh, in the preceding periods. And so when we look at that, when we break down that figure of 600 works, we think of this extraordinarily long career of Michelangelo. This is a career that lasts from 1487, when Michelangelo is 12 years old, when he's recorded as picking up a payment uh, for his then master, Domenico Galandaio, and it goes all the way until he's 88. So that is a career of 77 years. And when you take those 77 years, this extraordinarily long career, and we know that he was drawing right until the end. There are reports of him as an old man drawing for hours. Uh, 600 drawings divided by 77 comes to um, less than eight drawings a year, and we know that Michelangelo must have made many, many, many more than eight drawings a year. So we are seeing a real tip of the iceberg, and that compares very badly, let's say, with Raphael, who has a much shorter career, last little more than 25 years, there are uh, uh, 450 drawings by Raphael, and there are 4,000 drawings uh, by Leonardo. Admittedly, some of them are sort of tiny weeds that have been cut up, but still uh, an awful lot more. But still, we have to confront this thing that Michelangelo did order drawings and a variety of points in his career to be destroyed. We know, for example, that in 1518, when Michelangelo has already moved uh, to Rome, uh, from Rome to Florence, he writes uh, to the person who's looking after his Roman studio that he should burn all the cartoons of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And that probably happened. That's why there are no cartoons of the Sistine Chapel ceiling. As it was, actually, uh, his um, 
Roman studio flooded, so even if he hadn't burnt them, they'd have probably been destroyed anyway, so one can take some consolation from that. But what is it that makes Michelangelo want to destroy his work in this way? And one answer to that is provided by Giorgio Vasari in his 1568 Lives of the Artist, his second edition, written four years after Michelangelo's death. And Vasari says that the reason why Michelangelo wanted to destroy uh, his drawings is that he did not want to see the effort that has gone into the creation of his work. And that may well be true. That certainly may be an impulse in Michelangelo's uh, wish to uh, destroy his drawings. But there's another impulse uh, that one sees in Michelangelo in his letters. And remember, you know, Michelangelo is an artist who we uniquely know an enormous amount about uh, because there are 1,400 letters either written or uh, written by Michelangelo or written to Michelangelo, the bulk of which are um, preserved in the Casa Buonarroti. And it, it's this sort of Florentine mercantile tradition of keeping, storing your records. So we have letters, we have uh, his, his bank, bank records, what he's paid for things. So there's this enormous volume of material. One really kind of can get inside Michelangelo's world through these letters. Raphael, there's one, two letters. Um, Leonardo, uh, Leonardo is really an enigma, despite um, all his notebooks. Uh, so Michelangelo is very different. And we have, in one of his letters, that he writes uh, to his father. In, um, he's in, he, he's uh, writing Michelangelo's in Rome, and he writes to his father, who's in Florence, in October 1511, and I quote, I wrote to you that no one should touch my things or drawings or anything else. You have not given me an answer, so it appears you do not read my letters. It's sort of typically rather kind of... Um, um, kind of angry diatribe against his, his rather useless father. But that, you know, definitely Michelangelo is a man who would not allow you to play with his toys. Um, and keeping things away from other artists is absolutely key to his, to his makeup. So the question of access to Michelangelo's drawing is absolutely key. And it's one I think we should very much keep in mind when we go downstairs to look at the exhibition. Because I think what often happens uh, when you're looking at drawings in an exhibition, you immediately assume this is what the artist intended. He intended us to see these drawings. But this is absolutely not the case with Michelangelo. He did not want us to look at his drawings in any shape or form. In fact, he probably absolutely horrified uh, that we were looking at his drawings. So here are two drawings from the Casa Buonarroti. Uh, uh, the one on the left is in the exhibition. It's a study of a, 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 man's, uh, a, a man's leg. And the one on the right is a very early example, uh, the earliest uh, example of, of a pure red chalk drawing uh, by Michelangelo. And they both relate to a painting, the, 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 the Doni Tondo, which is a painting uh, he, he creates in 1506 uh, well, around 1506 for a, a, a rich Florentine wool merchant, Agnolo Doni. And these are precisely the kind of drawings that Michelangelo wanted uh, to, to keep uh, hidden. And it's very, very 
different, this, uh, this wanting to preserve his design process away from us, it is in stark contrast to his great rival uh, in, uh, in Rome, uh, Raphael, who uh, early on seizes the opportunity of the relatively new uh, uh, technology of printing. He's looked at what Dürer is doing in Germany, how Dürer is becoming an internationally, well, the first international artist through printmaking. And Raphael sees what engraving can offer in terms of both promulgating his name and, you know, let's be frank, in earning, in earning money. So here is uh, uh, an early uh, study by Raphael in the British Museum for this uh, wonderful engraving, one of the great masterpieces of uh, uh, 16th century Italian engraving by uh, the Bolognese printmaker Marc Antonio Ramondi, who works with Raphael to create this print. That is absolutely, Michelangelo has nothing to do with printmakers. He does not want um, uh, to share his work. Uh, he wants, in fact, to work on a different strategy, a strategy where he builds up his name uh, as a designer in completely the opposite way by actually being extraordinarily exclusive as to whom he shares his drawings with. And we'll see that uh, in the course of the show. So let's go back to those, uh, those Dhoni drawings. And there is the painting in the Uffizi on the right with this extraordinary kind of um, contrived uh, composition with the Virgin Mary reaching over her shoulder to, to, to hold the Christ child who's been given, handed over by Joseph behind. And uh, so the drawing uh, on, on the left-hand side, of uh, the bottom left, is a study for Christ's left, no, I always get this wrong, his, his right thigh, um, uh, the thigh that, that, that's pointing, um, pointing outwards, uh, and we'll see that in, in a detail. And I think when you look at that drawing, uh, you have to, one thing you have to keep in mind is that the, the, the original look of that drawing is not as we see it now. I mean, the paper would have been, uh, would have been a cream paper, but also the ink that uh, Michelangelo would have used, all uh, Italian masters would have used, would have been a black ink, which uh, due to, uh, uh, over time, oxi has oxidized into this dark chocolatey brown. That is not uh, the color it would have been when it came out, when it was dipped in, in the, the quill pen that Michelangelo used to make that drawing. And I think what we have to do time and time, ago, time, and time again in the show is to kind of be quite, um, is to be a bit like a detective. We have to think that what we're seeing is a tiny uh, tip of the iceberg in terms of the drawings that survive. I mean, this is, uh, as far as I'm aware, the, the, the two drawings that we know uh, that Michelangelo made for the, for the Doni Tondo. He must have made many, many more drawings. And one reason that we, we can be absolutely sure um, that he... Um, let's have a look at the... Let's look at the detail there. Is in this drawing, he is just concentrating on this leg here. And he's just showing um, 
the, 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 the scrotum, the all-important scrotum to show that Christ is like us. He's, he's made, made of, he's a, um, a man, uh, he's, he's a human, um, God made flesh. And you can see that he doesn't, hasn't bothered at all with this leg because he knows that the virgin's hand is going to obscure that leg. You're just going to get a sort of dark bit of flesh there. He doesn't need to make, that draw, make a drawing of the other leg because it's not going to be seen. And so looking at that drawing tells us that, they, that Michelangelo must have made a study of that whole group, um, but that whole group does not survive. And so we have to, in a way, piece together what it might have looked like. And here's a drawing of very much the same period for the Battle of Kashina from the, from the uh, British Museum where there are these spidery drawings uh, of figures uh, drawn very quickly, and I would suspect very strongly that somewhere, uh, somewhere, well, perhaps it still exists, perhaps it's in your attic, I don't know, lucky you if it is, there is a compositional drawing for the Doni Tondo of that type, but we don't have that. So looking at these drawings, we have to sort of fill in the gaps. Um, and... Look, going back to the, um, uh, um, the head of the virgin, he's used a male figure. And of course, that is something that one, uh, can I go back? That he does spectacularly, and possibly the most, one of the most beautiful drawings that Michelangelo ever produces is this incredible red chalk drawing for the head of Leda. Uh, Leda, obviously, a woman, um, but he's used a, a male figure. And one could, uh, and I've just, uh, the, the painting that um, uh, Michelangelo makes for uh, that figure has lost, and so I'd show you an engraving to give you an idea of this you know, rather kind of sexy uh, painting that, well, for Michelangelo, quite sexy, uh, of, of, of this strange coming together of, of a swan and, and leader. Um, but the drawing undoubtedly is this incredibly sensual appreciation of, of male beauty, and of course, uh, you know, the male body, it is the male body that is Michelangelo's preferred vehicle for artistic expression. And that is undoubtedly connected to his own uh, sexual preferences. He was undoubtedly um, a gay artist. As to whether, you know, he was a practicing gay artist, I leave to your imaginations and we'll, we'll never know. But certainly... Um, uh, it was the beauty of the male body that really uh, is, is Michelangelo's subject. But I think we should be careful about putting too much weight on, on it in this particular aspect. Because, of course, um, if we look at other artists, uh, the use of a male body standing in for a female is very standard in Renaissance studio practice. So here is a drawing in the British Museum by Luca Signorelli, a Tuscan artist who we know uh, knew Michelangelo and is one of the very few artists that Michelangelo actually is quite nice about, uh, admires his last judgment in Orvieto. And here uh, is uh, a case of, uh, of, of Signorelli posing two figures, two uh, studio assistants, uh, for a massacre of the innocents. And so obviously this is a man who's, who's going to kind of stab... Um, the child who's not drawn, but here's a man standing in for a, a woman. 
So that's absolutely uh, um, standard practice, and Michelangelo indeed follows it throughout his career of, of using uh, uh, male bodies standing in uh, for female bodies. But those drawings downstairs for the Doni Tondo, that, that drawing of a leg, is definitely a drawing that was never intended to be seen outside the studio walls. Um, and another one in that same um, category, a drawing made by Michelangelo for his own study purposes, is this uh, very developed drawing for uh, the facade of San Lorenzo. So um, in terms of where we are in, in, in Michelangelo's career, uh, he's, um, he's gone to Rome, he's painted the Sistine uh, Chapel, he's been commissioned to do the Julius tomb, um, but then uh, a new Medici Pope is elected in the shape of Leo X. Leo X's favorite artist is Raphael, um, and I think the the tension in the papal court between the courtly, affable, um, wonderfully kind of diplomatic Raphael and the irascible, solitary uh, Michelangelo became too much. Uh, and um, you know, Leonardo, uh, Leo X found Michelangelo very, very difficult uh, uh, indeed as a personality, uh, uh, despite the fact that uh, they'd sort of grown up together in the, in the, in the Medici Palace as young men, but in a way that his solution to this problem is to send Michelangelo back to Florence to work on this commission, which is to create a marble facade for um, the church of San Lorenzo, the church just round the corner from um, the Medici Palace. And so this is a kind of expression of Medici dynastic continuing uh, patronage. Um, but as you can see from the photograph in the top right, uh, this is not a commission that gets anywhere at all. Uh, but this is a late idea for it. We're, we're going to look slightly later on at another drawing, which is an earlier um, iteration of this idea of, of the facade. And so here he's come to this incredibly dramatic idea of really covering the whole of the facade of San Lorenzo, not respecting it at all in terms of the, the, the forms behind, but to create this amazing sheath of marble around it that actually projects outwards from uh, the, the brick of the church. And it would have been, uh, um, you know, it would have been extraordinarily expensive um, to finish because it would have been all marble. And the trouble with marble is that there's no marble at all close to Florence, and so eventually it has to be abandoned. But on the back of this drawing, which is very close to the model that gets made for the facade for Leo X to look at, uh, on the lower right, um, which shows you uh, what, a, what, what this very small diminutive drawing, how close it is to, to Michelangelo's final plan, on the back of that drawing, unfortunately we can't see it in the show, but it is illustrated in one of the panels, we have um, this drawing, and one of the great things about uh, Michelangelo's drawings is you can see the way in which uh, he's under intense pressure that as he's working on one commission, he always has to think of another commission. That, that, that one of the problems, you know, we always talk about Michelangelo as somebody who does the non finito, he doesn't finish things. 
and that, you know, uh, often is partly to do with, with Michelangelo's inability to work, to delegate, to create a studio in the way uh, that Raphael does. But the other thing is that every single pope who arrives wants to have Michelangelo working for them. And so on the, on the back of that drawing, so there's a Medici project on the front of it, working for Leo X. On the back of it is an idea for the Julius tomb, this, this commission that absolutely haunts uh, Michelangelo. He's uh, commissioned in 1505 to create a tomb for Julius II, the patron uh, of the Sistine Chapel. And this is a commission that just becomes, as is often the case with Michelangelo, starts quite sort of um, uh, in a reasonable form. On the left-hand side is a, an early drawing in uh, the Metropolitan, which shows a quite, you know, a, a, a kind of reason, you know, kind of realistic um, idea for a, a freestanding tomb with uh, several figures. But as Michelangelo works on it, which is often the case with his work, it becomes extraordinarily ambitious. Um, the idea is he's going to create uh, over uh, 40 sculpted figures for this Julius II tomb, as well as bronze reliefs. And this is an artist, as I said, who really cannot delegate at all. He finds it extraordinarily difficult to say to another sculptor, you do this, I will do that, uh, I will uh, direct you. And this, uh, in the middle, is the very compromised tomb that eventually gets erected in San Pietro in Vincoli in 1545. So it's a 40-year commission and very, it, it really does haunt Michelangelo because he's taken an enormous amount of money from Julius II and um, he's been, quite frankly, quite deceitful in saying um, that he needs more money. So it's a commission that he really, at certain points in his career, fears very much for his own life because the Della Rovere are quite a, a, a kind of murderous, thuggish bunch. And, um, you know, you didn't sort of mess around with uh, papal families. But anyway, so... Here on the, on the right-hand side is, is Michelangelo thinking of that figure of uh, the dead pope. And very characteristically, and you'll see it again and again in the show, is how uh, he often is rotating figures in his mind. You know, the figure is going to be seen from the front, so here, if you can make it out here, is, is that same figure held up by angels, um, which is going to be seen from the front. But Michelangelo is a sculptor. Uh, he wants to always think what it would look like from the side. Uh, and, but as with many uh, cases in the show, it's an idea that actually doesn't get developed at all. And in the end, he, he goes for a far less, um, a sort of more conventional idea of a pope lying on his funeral bier. But, so, it's, it's an example of how uh, drawings, in a way, show you those many paths that Michelangelo explored and then retreated from and how the sort of endless possibilities in his head uh, during the creative process. But I think that drawing opens up you know, if one's asked why, why is Michelangelo a great draftsman, I would say a drawing like this, a very, very simple drawing, and there are other 
pure outline drawings in the show give you that extraordinary quality which only the really, really great draftsmen, whether it be Rembrandt or Matisse or Picasso, have this ability to suggest weight and volume and solidity just by outline. So there's these sort of beautiful moments here where he just sort of digs in in a little V there to give you this sort of sagging body and, and presses here to get that extraordinary idea of the calf, um, uh, the weight and, and the form and the shape of the leg. And I think if you look at other contemporary uh, uh, artists like Leonardo, here's a small little drawing uh, by Leonardo, has that same quality, the ability of an outline to take the form. He doesn't need to shade, it's just a sense of the figure in space is created by that form. And another, although Michelangelo would hate me for saying it, um, is another artist who can do that, is Raphael. Uh, this is a, a drawing uh, in the BM. Uh, but Raphael works in a slightly different way than, 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 than uh, Michelangelo and Leonardo. He generates forms through these um, elliptical, uh, geometrical forms. He kind of generates them by curve after curve after curve. But it's the same effect. Uh, the, this, this sense of a figure in space. So I think, look at that downstairs and see what uh, Michelangelo can do in line alone. But looking at the drawing on the right uh, gives, us, gives a very clear idea of, of something that Michelangelo wanted to deny. Famously, uh, in Michelangelo's sort of ghosted autobiography, uh, written by Ascanio Condivi, this very minor artist that Michelangelo picks up, and he gets him to write the, the life, his life in 1553, three years after Vasari's uh, Lives of the Artist, which includes a biography of Michelangelo, which is full of praise, but does include things that Michelangelo would rather not have mentioned. And in a way, the Condivi biography is one of the great creations of Michelangelo's career. It is the sort of the first sort of really crafted uh, uh, biography uh, by a ghost writer. And one of the things that Michelangelo wants to write out of his story is the fact that he was a pupil of Domenico Gallandio. He wants to be seen as miraculously born out of the soil of, of Florence and that he's a great artist. He doesn't need to have ever been taught by uh, Gallandio. Uh, and in fact, uh, when uh, Vasari, in his second, uh, second edition of The Lives of the Artists, uh, he, you know, he goes to Gallandio's son and he finds the contract that shows that, Bizarre, uh, that Michelangelo was an apprentice uh, and that, that, um, that contract has disappeared, but we know that uh, he was in uh, Domenico Gallandio's studio in 1487. So he definitely was uh, an apprentice of Gallandio. And we see that even if we didn't have any of those contracts, I think in looking at this very notational way that he draws uh, is very closely linked to Gallandio. So this is uh, on the left-hand side, a drawing by Gallandio from the, um, the great commission that he paints uh, for uh, in, in Santa Maria Novelli, the, the Tornabuoni Chapel. So here he is sketching out very, very quickly uh, with, a, uh, with extraordinary economy of means um, 
the composition. And you can see, I think, um, in this very notational style, a kind of, a, a, a kind of uh, an oval for the head, little knobbly um, forms for the, for, the, for, the, uh, for the arms and hands. This is exactly uh, the style that Michelangelo picks up. So his drawing, in a way, reveals that he is a pupil of Gerlandio, uh, much as he would um, like um, to, to deny it. And you see that notational style in one of the largest drawings, a drawing, I have to say, that I don't particularly love in the show. I mean, I, I think it's uh, slightly mechanical, and I think you know, uh, it's possible that large parts of it, the kind of the rule bits, were done by some um, studio assistant rather than by Michelangelo himself. At least I hope so, because uh, it's, it's lacking the inspiration. But the great thing in it, uh, so this is an earlier idea for the facade of San Lorenzo, the one that we saw earlier, and a rather less, a much less developed idea for it. Uh, this is uh, when he's really thinking of uh, the facade as a, a means, a sculptural screen. And so, uh, here he has these figures of, of San Lorenzo uh, and, and, again, very, very quickly drawn, very, very quickly, uh, these wiry little figures showing that Gerlandio influence um, still. I mean, the nice bit in this drawing is actually the sheet that he's added at the top, and then he's got this, just with a brush, put in this marvellous sort of nonchalant figure leaning on the wall up here, a, a rather sort of beautiful touch. But that doesn't... Um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't survive, it doesn't come uh, to anything at all. Um, but it is, um, and one has to think what this drawing might have been for. It's a very large drawing, and it's probably a preliminary idea for a drawing uh, to be shown to Leo X as an idea of what Michelangelo had in mind to be sent uh, for the facade of uh, San Lorenzo. And the idea of drawing as a means of communication is something that we see in the exhibition. The idea of a drawing as a means of an artist getting a patron to understand what he has in mind. And this probably was a drawing, I think, intended for Leo X, but it's not completed. It may well have never been sent from Florence to Rome. But the idea of drawing as a form of communication is, is not invented by Michelangelo by any means. And this is a, a drawing, again, in the British Museum by the Ferrarese artist Cosimo Tura um, of a virgin and child with saints. And you might ask in the audience, why is this person from the, from, uh, in the rostrum saying this is definitely a drawing to be shown uh, to a, a patron? And the reason is, is that behind all these figures, he has written here, horo, meaning oro, gold. He writes gold, 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 gold. Now, unless you think that Tura has some sort of dementia and he, um, he needs to remind himself that there's gold, um, what's clear is this drawing is made for a patron who's very, very worried that this painting that Tura wants to paint for him is not going to have enough sort of bling in it. And so... <laughs> So tourists, you know, is definitely saying, it's got gold in it. Uh, and, and so that is, uh, he's sending it off 
to a patron to remind him that uh, this is definitely going to be what he wants. Sadly, uh, the painting doesn't survive. So this is a form uh, of, of communication between um, artist um, and, and, and patron. And this becomes very, very important, drawing as, as a channel of communication uh, when Michelangelo is moved off San Lorenzo facade. Uh, Leo X realizes uh, that he just cannot afford the enormous quantity of marble that needs to be, uh, that it would need to consume. And that he, in fact, is, uh, decides that Michelangelo should move and work on projects inside the church of San Lorenzo. And particularly the, the, uh, the burial chapel, the, the, new, uh, the new sacristy, the Medici chapel, um, on one side of the church and on the other side of the church uh, that he should work on uh, the library. And for the most part, uh, his, his patron is, is not Leo X, it is his cousin, uh, Clement VII, uh, who takes over as Pope in 1524. Now, Clement VII uh, is, um, I think, is nothing short of a miracle in Michelangelo's life. He's the most wonderful patron. Um, and we have to imagine, a, this is a drawing on the right-hand side. This is a, a study uh, for the, uh, the ceiling panels um, of the uh, chapel, the, new, the, new, the Medici chapel, the new sacristy. And this is a drawing done specifically, if we look, think of that public and private, this is a drawing done specifically to be seen. This is a drawing done by Michelangelo for Clement VII. And it's, to me, is you know, deeply moving, is there is Michelangelo who has been raised, well, after he leaves Gerlandaio's studio, he is invited by Lorenzo the Magnificent to join, uh, become a member of the Medici household. He lives for undetermined period, but you know, maybe four or five years in the Palazzo Medici. And there he gets to know both Leo and his cousin, um, the future Clement VII. And whereas Leo X really cannot get on with Michelangelo, Clement, well, whereas Leo cannot get on, Clement VII really does understand how Michelangelo ticks. Um, and he's an extraordinarily kind of sympathetic patron, despite the fact that actually Michelangelo at every single turn betrays him because Michelangelo is, by nature, he's anti-Medician. He wants Florence to be, be ruled um, by um, a republic. Um, but in this period, uh, when Florence is being governed by the Medici, there is Clement in Rome. Uh, he's having a terrible time. Uh, he's an appalling pope. Um, he backs the wrong side. He backs the French when he should be backing um, the imperial forces, and it, it ends in disaster in 1527 when the imperial forces sack Rome and they take Clement as prisoner. I mean, it's just, you know, the worst thing that has ever happened to a pope. And as everything goes wrong, uh, the one solace in his life uh, for the poor old pope is these letters and drawings of, by Michelangelo. And uh, we have these extraordinary correspondence between Michelangelo and Clement 
in Rome uh, commenting on these drawings that are being sent to him. Uh, and so this is one. This is a drawing done in a very clear style for Clement to comment upon. Um, and it's an idea that actually doesn't come to, uh, come to anything. Uh, uh, there's a uh, Clement toys with the notion of actually putting stucco figures in the coffering of the new sacristy. And I don't think Michelangelo is remotely keen on this idea, partly because uh, it would detract from his architecture. But he, you know, gives it a go. Uh, and then above shows what it would look like without anything. And that's indeed uh, what happens. And another example of one of those uh, drawings done for Clement is this one, uh, which is for... This is, so here we are, there's the, the Medici Chapel, the, 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 the new sacristy. This is the, uh, the library, uh, and there's uh, the, the Ricetto there. And the idea here was, at the end of it, was to build this triangular um, building, which was to house the most, most precious of Lorenzo the Magnificent's uh, manuscripts. And here, I think is a chance to actually hear Michelangelo's voice because he writes on this drawing and he writes something directed towards Clement. So he says, uh, at the, it's all about uh, uh, where the building can be, bu be built because on this side, there's the Palazzo and the Martelli and the Martelli are rather difficult and you can't sort of, it, it can't be moved. These walls can't be pushed out. But here he says, di qua si può fare quello che ti pare perché è dei preti. Here you can do anything you like because it uh, is of, of, of the priests. It's, you know, you're the Pope, they're priests, you know, if you want to not, you know, move it. And there's a rather, uh, in this bit here, uh, he, he talks about la haza, the, uh, which if you've ever been to Tuscany, they have this, uh, you know, if you ask a Tuscan to pronounce Coca-Cola, they say ho ho hola. Um, and so here you get this Florentine intonation where he writes casa, C-H-A-S-A. -S and so you can hear Michelangelo's Tuscan accent expressed through this beautiful writing. And again, it is a wonderful creation of Michelangelo is that he is writing in this wonderful, the elegant script. And another example of these elegant drawings that Michelangelo produces for Clement is this one on the right uh, for a, um, an, uh, an unexecuted idea for the tombs of Clement and Leo X uh, in the choir of San Lorenzo. And I think it's, I've talked about how uh, Michelangelo is often looking at things from different angles. And I think it's an acknowledgement of the sophistication of Clement his patron, who really understands architecture, is that he does the elevation and then he does the ground plan. And he knows that Clement is so used to looking at drawings, at architectural drawings, that he will understand that these two are related. So he can, he can just draw this column, but he's showing you here that there's another column behind it. And he's done it in a rather lucid, uh, with this beautiful use of, of wash to explain the different planes uh, of this tomb design. Um, but even so, if you look up here, there are, there are changes. He, you know, he cannot resist 
tweaking and, and making changes. And again, he, uh, he's relaxed, sufficiently relaxed enough with Clement to be able to send a drawing like that. And this, I just put on the left-hand side, is an example of a much rougher drawing of the kind of architectural drawing that, that uh, Michelangelo is producing when he's not got Clement in mind. And when you think of this extraordinary kind of relationship between Clement uh, and, and, and Michelangelo, how Michelangelo was really nurtured and looked after by Clement, did everything he could to, to kind of send money to him and, and send him encouraging messages because he knew that Michelangelo was always needed encouragement. And then, of course, the moment the Medici are pushed out as a result of uh, the sack of Rome uh, and the papacy le losing control, what does Michelangelo do? He's work he, he says, yes, I, you know, I, I love the Republic. I'm going to help fortifications of the city. And two of these uh, are in the show. Uh, now, that, that one and that one are both in the show. But I'd show you other examples of these fortifications that Michelangelo uh, creates and never builds because he doesn't have time. The Florentine Republic just doesn't last long enough. But all those sort of lines of fire, those are lines of fire raking in to the, um, the, the troops of Clement VII. I mean, it, you know, there's a sort of, sort of thing, whoa. Uh, but, but such is Michelangelo's desire for his beloved Florence to remain a republic that he's absolutely willing to, um, uh, to uh, ditch his patron and, and work for the Republic. But what is so wonderful about Clement is the moment the, uh, uh, Florence falls, does Clement take, you know, punish Michelangelo? Absolutely not. He just says, you know, get back to work on the Medici projects. Um, because, you know, hey, it's only politics. Um, and what's more important is having Michelangelo uh, working away um, on your, um, on your uh, great commissions. And to develop, again, this idea of public and private is, is this great drawing in the show, which is Cleopatra. Um, and this is a drawing uh, we, we move a little bit later in Michelangelo's career. He's, he's in Florence. He goes in 1532. He leaves Florence for a short period uh, in order to go and renegotiate another renegotiation, the contract with the Della Rovere family for the Julius II tomb. And he falls in love. He meets in Rome this young aristocrat called Tommaso de Cavalieri, uh, who uh, is probably around 20. Michelangelo is then 57. And for the first time in his life, Michelangelo is deeply, deeply smitten. He's in love uh, with this uh, extremely good-looking uh, young um, Roman aristocrat. And part of his expression of love is that he gives Tommaso de Cavalieri drawings because it is this opening up uh, to be able to show his most personal and intimate side which is expressed in a drawing. And of course, if you think about it, it's a rather strange love token uh, to, to have a drawing of Cleopatra uh, being bitten by an asp. It's, it's you know, it's, it's not sort of a box of chocolates. But um, <laughs> it's very, very Michelangelo because if you look at Michelangelo's poetry that he writes, again, fired by this intense passion 
for Tommaso, love is often equated with pain and suffering because he's opening himself up and he realizes uh, that this, uh, he's vulnerable. And, and so there's this, you know, there is this drawing created which he hands over to Tommaso and this drawing is extraordinarily well um, um, documented because we know that in 1562, uh, so after Michelangelo, um, just before Michelangelo's uh, death, the Duke Cosimo de' Medici forces Tommaso, well, it doesn't force him, but I mean, he writes, and if you're a grand duke, if you're a duke, you tend to say, okay, uh, Tommaso de' Cavalieri to hand this drawing over as an example of the great uh, Michelangelo's work. And Tommaso does, and he writes about how giving it to the duke uh, is like the loss of a child. But what's very interesting about this drawing is very, very polished, highly refined, just the kind of finished drawing uh, that was most uh, desired and admired by 16th century uh, patrons. But on the back of it is this much rougher drawing that Michelangelo uh, did, a first draft of that figure, and yet he feels comfortable enough with Tommaso to send him a drawing which contains this rough draft. And if we look at another drawing of, that, of this same um, category, uh, a drawing in the British Museum, uh, a drawing, uh, a, a, a presentation drawing, although we don't know who it's made for, it's very interesting that on the back of this drawing, uh, so you have ultra-refined drawing like the Cleopatra, but on the back of it is this drawing uh, which shows uh, a variety of drawings. So that's, that's Michelangelo, that's one of his hopeless students making a copy of it. Uh, that's Michelangelo, then the Michelangelo drawing of a man defecating, and then hopeless students in the, uh, at the top. But he's, again, I think it's this, in the giving of the drawing, part of it is to show the kind of, the life of the studio, the life of, of, the, of the artist, that's part of it. It's not just the beautiful drawing. It's about uh, revealing the inner workings of Michelangelo's life as a practicing artist. So it's about intimacy and the expression of it. And if we look very carefully at some of the drawings downstairs, we're going to see examples of this very brief period when Michelangelo is in Florence, when, uh, so this is from 1516 to 1534. In the 1520s, he, uh, he, he takes a group of pupils and he, and he teaches them how to draw. But Michelangelo being Michelangelo, he handpicks his pupils to be as really bad as possible because he he's, he's feels very threatened if anybody remotely um, decent is around him. He feels, you know, that they're going to steal his ideas, that they're going to uh, challenge him. And so he is always surrounds himself by non-entities. And if we look at this drawing, um, and you'll, you'll have to do a, a basilisk sort of on your head moment in the show, because uh, you'll see these drawings of, of feet are, I think, in my view, almost certainly not by Michelangelo. Uh, these are, these are, so, this is the parsimony of Michelangelo. He's taking a drawing that uh, a, a pupil has used, and he's just using it to make that drawing of the facade of San Lorenzo. 
another drawing in the show. Uh, these are drawings for the, the uh, early ideas for the, uh, that great staircase in the vestibule of uh, the Laurentian Library. And he's drawn these pen and ink drawings again uh, on these pretty terrible drawings by his, I mean, the black chalk one I'm not sure about, but these red chalk heads, no way can they be by, by Michelangelo, at least I hope not. Um, so uh, this is a, a, a case where he's just taken uh, drawings uh, used by his pupils and he's just drawn over them. Um, and we see that very famously in this drawing in the, in the British Museum where he, uh, he writes, he addresses to one of his pupils, Antonio Mini, he writes here, Disegna Antonio, disegna Antonio, disegna e non perde tempo. Draw Antonio, draw Antonio, draw and don't waste time. Uh, and so he produces this drawing, and this is Antonio uh, making a copy of it. But, you know, Antonio Mini is just, you know, he's, he's rubbish. I mean, he just, he's, he, he, you know, he, he just, whatever time, whatever time he takes, he's never going to be able to rival Michelangelo, and that is the point. Um, and we see, again, this very kind of, um, the way that the, the drawings are being used in the studio. Uh, again, we go back to that drawing. Um, we look at the verso of it. You can't see it. But he's, he's using it uh, here to draw a profile of a column base uh, for the project in San Lorenzo. Um, and there he's doing the same up here. Uh, so these would be designs which he's showing to the stonemasons who uh, are creating uh, the, um, the vestibule of San Lorenzo. Um, so he's, again, drawing on top of his pupils' drawings to show them what uh, he wants in terms of the shape of the bottom of the, uh, um, the columns. And I'm just going to end with here with this quote, which is... Um, really a kind of plea to all of you as you go downstairs that what Michelangelo's drawings need is, as Kirchner says, you have to pay very close attention uh, to drawings and read between the lines. Is we have to kind of look at them very, very, very intensely and interrogate them uh, with a kind of forensic detail. They're not works to be seen, you know, in, in, a, in a 30 seconds. You walk past them and that's it. Um, they really do repay very, very close attention. And I'm just going to um, talk about how so much the effect of Michelangelo's art is about, is about withdrawal, is about how actually so often in his work he doesn't show us what the protagonists think. They look away from us. And they, that forces us as a viewer uh, to think what is happening in the head of that figure. So here, Cleopatra, she doesn't show pain, she doesn't show suffering, what is she thinking? Is she, is she, um, is she triumphant because she's uh, cheated the Romans? Is she regretful that she's fallen in love with the wrong man? Who knows? But uh, that look away uh, is definitely something that we see again and again in Michelangelo's work, that wonderful drawing that ends the show. The Virgin Mary is looking away. She's not looking at her, uh, as, at her um, at her infant. What is she thinking? Is she thinking about the fact that she will be uh, holding her son's dead body? Is she aware of, 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 of 
of the future. All of those um, thoughts come in your head. Um, a portrait drawing, only one of two portrait drawings. This one's in the British Museum, Andrea Quaritesi, very much a portrait of an old man looking at a young man. Quaritesi is not looking at us, he's looking away from us. Uh, there's a kind of sense of vulnerability, there's a sense of an old man looking at the, at the fragility of, of, of beauty, of youth, that it is all going to pass. Um, a beautiful drawing, again in the British Museum, the Warwick Pietà, uh, the Virgin, again, looks away from us. We have to read those emotions. We have to interpret what she is thinking. Um, and the other point is, is this extraordinary sense of animation and dynamism in uh, Michelangelo's drawings. Time and this beautiful drawing of the risen Christ. So many times it is the, it's the torso that Michelangelo is interested. That's the twisting uh, of the hips and of the shoulders. Uh, and then he, this extraordinary kind of free invention at the bottom. Where is he going to place the legs of Christ? Are they going to be on the tomb? Are they going to be on the ground? All of those ideas are present in that drawing. Similarly, if you look at this drawing around here, there's real pentimenti, real alternative ideas which you can read and you can follow the course of, of Michelangelo's mind. This, again, the show, in, uh, drawing in the show, uh, there's all sorts of alterations here to the position of Isaac's head. Uh, he uh, originally draws him looking in this direction and then uh, turns his head so he's actually looking up at the angel. And there's also changes to this arm. Originally, he has the, the, the kind of the knife under his son's throat, and then he decides on that. Um, so you really need to look at these drawings extraordinarily closely to, to see these changes. And these are not changes that Michelangelo wants to close off. These are, these are all variations that can be taken up later. That, that they, they, they are always accessible through the ability of a drawing to be layered. And it is one of the great things about drawing, unlike a painting where it's covered, a drawing that accretion you can see in those lines. Uh, again, you know, that uh, I just show a fortification drawing again in that layered approach that you see. Um, and I suppose the greatest example of that in the show is this very late drawing it's the, uh, in the Porta Pia, where you're going to, um, you see that there are all sorts of different forms here that he's gone for. Uh, originally, I went for a, a triangular pediment, then he went for a semicircular one, then he decided to go again for the triangular pediment. All of those forms are in that drawing. All of them could be developed, could become the form, that he's not closing any of those off. And I suppose that, to me, comes very, very close to these uh, extraordinary late drawings um, which are really a kind of form of prayer, I think, where Michelangelo is drawing the crucifixion, where uh, the figure, he works and works and works, figures like this, and so the Virgin Mary has her arms out, but she also has her arms crossed, uh, an acceptance, uh, anguish at what she's seeing, but also acceptance, a gesture of acceptance at what she sees her Christ, uh, her son dying on the cross. And it, I think, to conclude with, it is that 
amazing ability through drawing to see uh, the progress in Michelangelo's mind, that really the way that drawings bring you close to one of the great creative minds of, of, of Western art. And I think, I hope all of you will return many times to see the show downstairs, because I think it is an extraordinary opportunity to become close to Michelangelo. Thank you very much. Battered you into submission. She does. We haven't had the revolution yet. <laughs> she does show. That, I mean, she. You know, as if she decides. But yes. Uh, you can, go to Win you can go to Windsor Castle and um, you're able to, to look at her drawing. She has a, a, a wonderful uh, drawing from this group, the Crucifixion. Uh, she's got a very, uh, a very good group of uh, Michelangelo drawings. Not, not 80, maybe uh, 25-odd, but really, really good quality ones that come from the Farnese family. So, yeah, well worth a look. And she does show them, to be fair, before the revolution. <laughs> That's the end of my knighthood. Um, th there's marvelous modeling in that um, final drawing of the Madonna and child, of, of, of the child. Right. Um, and I, I'm wondering, uh, when you see any of the architecture of Michelangelo in in, in fact, in front of you, um, it also has an extraordinary power to it that um, most most classical architecture doesn't doesn't have it because it it's it's done by Michelangelo as a, as a sculptor. And I'm wondering, do you see the link between his drawing and his architecture in any of the drawings in in a way that's perhaps similar to the modeling of that child in the Madonna and child drawing? Wow, that's a very hard question. Um, I mean, I certainly think that um, the inventiveness of Michelangelo's architecture is, is, comes out of, his, of him being a sculptor, that he thinks in forms in terms of, of like a sculptor, out of kind of volumes and, and, and in light and shade. And I suppose that is very related to the way that he conceives of architecture on the page that he's, when he's showing Clement, he tends to show, uh, use wash in order to, to give a sense of the distribution of light across the surface. Um, I suppose the, the Virgin and Child drawing is, is a slightly unusual drawing for him because of, 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 the, of the combination of techniques in that it uses black and red chalk, pen and browning, right. and lead white and it's a slightly mysterious drawing in, in what it is for. It's a very large drawing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, is it made uh, for another artist? For example, we know that he supplied drawings 
for artists like Bujadini. Maybe it's something like that. But it is, as I, you know, I agree with you, incredibly sculptural. There's a sense of that the Christ child having been carved out of marble. Well, um, I, I guess that it, it is always so amazing to me that not only is his architecture inventive, but I, I guess particularly thinking of that stair, stairwell yeah. room of the um, Lorenziana. Yeah. Um, uh, that the actual pieces that make it up, um, the, the architectural decoration, there's just a sculptural power to that stuff, which is really quite amazing. And, and, and the drawings that I've seen don't seem to convey that power. And I, I, I imagine it must have been the working between him and the mason to a fair extent, but uh, I just wonder if there are any drawings that seem to um, well, it's a, Make that like, link. Like, many, like many commissions by Michelangelo, that is a particularly complicated one in that the drawings we're seeing in the show uh, are much, much earlier than the actual realization. In fact, that uh, the design for that uh, staircase doesn't happen until long after Michelangelo has left for Rome. And in fact, yeah. he sends a model of it uh, to uh, allow Aminati and Bizarre to sort of uh, to make it. Um, so I think its sculptural quality is the fact that it's, you know, has a sculptural model behind it. And where we, where we see uh, Michelangelo in terms of the San Lorenzo staircase is, is a long way away from where uh, the, the final design will be. But I think you see, you know, in the Porta Pia or the uh, designs for San Giovanni Florentini, that sense of sculptural modeling, carving out of, of space, which I think you get in that incredible kind of lava flow of the stairs in that space, which is, I mean, he's, you know, he's unbelievably unconventional. You know, he uses classical forms in a completely unclassical way, in a way that is quite shocking if you're sort of trained in, in, in classical vocabulary. Michelangelo doesn't really care about that. It's all about effect, and, and uh, you know that's I think why we love him as an architect. Not that he follows the rules; he breaks rules in these incredible inventive flights of fancy. Um, and of course, drawing is part of that because drawing is absolutely where Michelangelo begins every single project that he ever conceives is on paper. Thank you. So the question is about whether there are um, underdrawings in his paintings. Well, of course, there are very few panel paintings by Michelangelo. I mean, you know, he, on the whole, he, he worked as a fresco painter, uh, and the the cleaning of the Sistine Chapel certainly did reveal quite dramatic changes that he made, uh, and especially in the in the second half of the Sistine Chapel ceiling, he was working with extraordinary speed. He was keen to sort of finished the damn thing. Um, um, and so um, he's working uh, with a fluency um, that uh, is amazing uh, concerning the conditions that he was, he was working. Um, but, you know, he didn't, he did, I mean, he, you know, he calls himself Michelangelo the sculptor for most of his time. He, he definitely um, doesn't want to be thought of as a painter. And that's, of course, one of the great conundrums
in Michelangelo's career is the only training that we know that he has is as a painter. How did he become such a great sculptor? You know, where did he receive his training as a sculptor? We just don't know. Um, but the answer is, there are, you know, there's the early, uh, that there are two early panels in, in, in the National Gallery, um, which I now can't remember what the infrared shows, but I'm sure there probably are changes. But um, uh, on the whole, Michelangelo is an artist who likes to make changes. Uh, you only have to look at his sculptures. Uh, the two marble tondi uh, that he produces in Florence, he has to abandon because he makes so many changes, he runs out of marble. Um, so um, he's, a, he's a, definitely an artist who likes to keep on inventing as he's working, um, which makes him, I think, so exciting. Okay, forests of hands. Oh, no. Um, hello. I was just wondering, with regards to the paper of the drawings and how the drawings are holding up, I guess over 70 years, the quality of the paper may have changed, or did they think that was a very important thing, as they were always just sketches and drawings, and are, you, are we able to look after them, you know, so that they'll stand the test of time? <clears throat> Well, um, that's a very good question. I think paper is absolutely fundamental to what Michelangelo does. Um, he's an artist uh, who uses a huge amount of paper. Uh, he's very parsimonious in his use of paper. There are, you see in, in the exhibition, there are cases where writing is coming back through from the verso. He's often using you know, uh, bits of paper where he's recorded expenses to draw on, and I've shown you those drawings you know, where he's using uh, sheets of paper that have been used by his uh, pupils. Uh, I mean, thankfully, paper is a very tough material. Paper in those in that period is made out of out of, uh, of out of cloth. It's 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 handmade. It's made from um, um, beaten up bits of linen. It is intrinsically a very tough and hardy material. Um, and really, the great enemy of of paper. Is, is, is light, uh, and if you look downstairs, the lighting conditions are you know, not bright. So I think there's every chance that uh, Michelangelo's drawings uh, will endure for another 500 years, and you know, let's hope longer than that. Because he did, he used good, good quality, um, well-made well paper on the whole. There are a few cases of really rubbish paper where it's very sort of lumpy. But on the whole, uh, Michelangelo cared about paper, um, and so he served us well. So I think there's every reason to think that they're going to last. I mean, you know, having said that, you know, the British Museum may be struck by lightning tomorrow and, you know, heaven forbid. Um, um, but paper just is a durable material, thank goodness. Do you believe Michelangelo's habit of having the figures look away from um, the viewers of the art solely serves as purpose of making the audience consider what the subject of the art is thinking? Or do you believe it sheds any uh, light on his own personal state of mind when he created the art? Well, that's a tough question because, you know, you can read through 1,400 letters, as I have, and um, Michelangelo tends to be very, you know, uh, although his state of mind can be, um, you know, 
know, he can reveal his state of mind. I mean, the Sistine Chapel, he was, um, you know, this is one of the, the most glorious works in, the, in the, the canon of Western art. It's sort of all about the glories of man, and yet he writes with incredible depression about how awful it is um, and how much he's suffering and, um, you know, how he's not eating and he's got no friends, and yet he's creating this transcendent work that we use as you know, if any example of, of putting uh, man at the center of God's universe, it must be the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Um, so I, it's difficult to say. Um, you know, I think all that we can say with Michelangelo is that he's an extremely devout artist. He's an artist who cares very much about the state of his soul. His religious art is very profoundly and deeply felt. And so when he's painting a a Madonna and child, or he's painting, a, or I mean, drawing a, a Madonna and child, or drawing a Pietà. He really is very, very much thinking about the emotions, uh, because he himself is worried about the state of his soul. Um, and so, I think it's up to you to decide, all of us, to decide whether he's um, he's thinking of himself or reaching out to us. I think a bit of both, but one always has to keep in mind are these drawings intended to be seen by anybody else except for him? And a lot of the drawings, um, like the, the, the Virgin and Child, probably were intended to be seen, but a lot of them weren't. But that doesn't change um, their incredible power, their expressive power, even if he didn't want us to see them. So, yeah, up to you. <laughs> you, you had a, and then, um. I have a question about the Sistine Chapel. Like, okay. would you have any knowledge about the process and at what point in time it, did he, before even he had the commission to do it, at what point in time did, that, did he actually have that in mind way, way back before he actually had the commission to do that? Well, I think um, Michelangelo, I mean, you know, I don't think he ever thought he was going to get the Sistine Chapel ceiling, um, you know, when Julius II, oh, sorry, when Julius II gave him, um, he then had, you know, uh, a total panic about it because uh, he really hadn't had a lot of experience except for those short periods, short period with Domenico Galandio being a fresco painter. So the first thing he does is he, he, he calls uh, for a group of former assistants in Domenico Galandello's studio to come to Rome to help him out as a fresco painter. He then sacks them all because he thinks they're useless, um, and he takes it all on his own shoulders. I mean, everything that we know about the design process, and again, one has to sort of piece the process together, is that Michelangelo begins, as he often does, in a very simple way. He's just going to have spandrels with apostles, um, uh, around around the the uh, uh, the edges, and then they're going to be kind of geometrical panels uh, running in the in the centre. But as he works on these ideas, suddenly he realises he can do something much much more. Um, but he's looking at the drawings. I don't think he ever has a grand concept of the whole thing. He draws it in. I mean, somebody must have told him. He must have, I don't believe that um, 
Julius II would have left Michelangelo to entirely to his own devices. He must have uh, been uh, had discussions as to what is going to be painted on the ceiling. But as to the design of it, I think that's very much left up to Michelangelo. And he does it in two sections. He does a first half, then there's a break, and then there's a second half. And you can see that if you look at the, the, the ceiling, because the second half, the figures get much bigger. As he realizes, they take the scaffolding down. He looks up and he realizes it's a dark chapel. I need to make my figures both bigger and brighter. And so there is this change in scale. And the drawings for the second half he changes um, technique. A lot of them are in red chalk, which is much sort of clearer and brighter because he's thinking of the effect of the, of the finished work. And so, you know, he's, I think he's designing the section that he's about to paint while he's painting another section. So he does it sort of uh, sequentially, although he must, at the beginning, have worked out the structure of it uh, in order um, to, to paint it. Uh, but it, it evolves in a quite kind of organic way. And if you look from one end to the other end, you see there's a, a great change in scale, and it becomes a much more dramatic, the figure of Haman sort of leaping out into the space of the chapel. That is what he does in the second campaign, because he just becomes a much more, uh, much bolder, much more uh, experimental fresco painter, and he realizes what he can do uh, with foreshortening. If you look at the other end, it's really quite tame in comparison because you know he's he's really learned as he's on the job. Um, so the drawings are a very key way of understanding Michelangelo's progress in that project. Oh. Um, could you show us that quotation again and remind us of its significance in terms of his work? Well, I'm, it's it's a, a oh God. <laughs> uh, where are we? We'll go down. It's from, uh, I, I came across it reading about German Expressionist print, so it's incredibly uh, relevant to this particular show. Um, so it's Kirchner. We have to look at drawings in the same way. We read a letter from a close friend and also pay attention to what is written between the lines. It just is a sort of plea for all of us is, you know, I mean, I do it exactly the same. You know, we're now very well versed in looking everything in about three seconds. You sort of flick through your whole life. And there are certain moments when, you know, we have to stop and actually, you know, slow down and look. And I think, you know, that's what Kirchner is saying, that we have to look at drawings. We have to understand not what is in them, but what is intended by them. Um, and I think, um, if we slow down and look at Michelangelo's drawings, you know, we're in for, you know, we're not going to waste our time. Okay. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.